I skate to where the puck is going to be, not where it has been. My personal superpower, if there's like one thing that I think is, I'm really good at, I'm super curious. And it, you know, people can write, write, write all they want, but what are people doing? And if there's anybody that's out there doing, they know how hard it is to actually do. One of the reasons that I understood the vision that I had is because I studied perfume, I really wanted to be a perfumer. I studied pastry and um, art, and I knew there were cows nearby. Cause see, I'm a comic who became an actor. So I'm cheap, like, you know, back in the day, like you could only do one thing. One thing. This is Polymathic by 2 p.m. We have Everett Taylor with us, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Everett is a longtime elite marketer. I want to give you some background on his on his career, his progression thus far, by asking him clearly what are your high points. I know a lot of the, a lot of projects that you've worked on in the past several years. I want to hear from you what your high points are. My high points, you know, interestingly enough, the the highest point in my career to me wasn't something that most people would think about. It's uh, when my mother told me that she was she was wrong and that I was right to pursue the career path um, that I chose. Um, she wasn't super supportive, but more not supportive in that motherly way of you know not dropping out of college and pursuing a career in Silicon Valley and tech and e-commerce and all of this stuff. So and marketing. So you know the day that she came to me and told me that. Everett, you made the right decision was probably my proudest moment in, in the highlight of my career. Um, but outside of that, I would have to say, um, obviously, the acquisitions, um, leading marketing at both Qualaroo and uh, in Skirt, which were led to successful acquisitions. I think being able to build um, a brand of successful, profitable companies um, under the ET Enterprises umbrella over the past decade um, has been great as well. I think a lot of this stuff is, is very marathon like things. It's not like this one shining, you know, one shining moment. I think even now today, working at artsy and being able to work at a company that's an industry leader and doing something that I'm genuinely passionate about and waking up every day, then I'm doing something I'm passionate about is very much a highlight for me. So that's an incredible that's an incredible career. I mean, obviously, I've, I've been well aware of your growth. Um, you've, you've only moved up. Um, what I want the crowd to understand is the, I guess, the, the, the influences that you've, that you've experienced. Um, I know that you've had a tumultuous young life. I wanted to understand how you found ways to circumvent those circumstances. Um, and... One of the fun things that I enjoy doing on interviews like this is for you to discuss, let's say, the top three moments of inflection in your first 20 years, whether it's a person that helped you or a course that you took or maybe a book that you read. So let's start with, uh, with your youth and the influences there. What, what got you to the point where you were the chief marketing officer of Artsy? Wow, that is, that is a very large question. Yeah, and uh, I know. <laughs> there's there's a there's a few things that really stick out to me um, in my head. Number one, uh, growing up in Southside Richmond, the first marketers and the first entrepreneurs I saw were on the street. 
um, and the way they operated their business. And um, those are the first the first entrepreneurs I really, really saw. And, uh, you know, good or bad, it inspired me to want to to not lead a traditional path. I know I knew I didn't want to end up like the other men in my family in jail, um, you know, dead, um, you know, mixed up in the wrong life. But also I realized that this nine to five kind of thing and, and living in poverty wasn't really for me and that I wanted something different for myself. Maybe not that, but I wanted something different for myself and I wanted to be able to do something more with my life, obviously just not selling drugs. Um, I would also say that seeing the generational poverty around me and seeing, you know, just generation of generation of my family being in poverty and kind of doing the same things and being in the same loop really inspired me to want to to have more for myself as well. And I've always been this type of person that just been a out of the box kind of thinker to the to the point of detriment in school where I would get in trouble with my teachers because I would question why things were done the way done the way that they were. Like I didn't understand that. I would always constantly question why things were done the way that they why things were done the way that they were and uh, wanting to come up with new ways to do things, uh, which drove my teachers crazy. But I just never wanted to stick to the status quo. But ultimately, the thing that really changed me was my introduction to marketing. Um, with all that being said, I still ended up, as I got a little bit older, getting into the streets and doing things that I wasn't supposed to be doing. And my mother caught me and uh, very low level stuff. But my mom so, caught me. Oh, go ahead. Really quickly for our audience, which frankly, not all of them had either of our upbringings. Um, can you exp can you expand on the euphemism, the streets so they can clearly understand? Oh yeah, sorry. I, I was selling drugs. I was, I was, I was. <laughs> that's. But honestly, I was only. <laughs> now I can say like I was only selling marijuana, um, <laughs> but you know it's crazy because in Virginia we still have people that are in jail and still going to jail over marijuana, right? Yeah. Um, but make it, if I was doing this interview ten years ago, I would have been afraid to say that. Um, but yeah, I was, I was selling you know, small stuff like dime bags and things like that. Nothing crazy. Um, dime bags for you guys that don't know is, is a $10 bag of weed. Uh, I don't know what this audience <laughs> is like. Um, but, um, but anyways, so uh, I was getting caught up in that and my mother forced me to get a real job. And I was only 14 at the time. And I had an interview at Chick-fil-A and I also had an interview with this company called Eastern National, which she found in the classified ads for a marketing associate role, junior marketing associate role. And I ended up going to that, that interview. And sometimes you're just natural at things and marketing just came naturally to me. Um, and I killed that interview and they actually thought I was an adult. They asked me if I could start that next Monday at 9 a.m. And I said that I couldn't and they assumed because I had school at the college and university VCU, but actually I was a freshman in high school. And uh, I actually pitched them on the idea of if I can come in before and after school and on weekends 
and can get the same same job done as somebody who was full time should not be able to keep that job. And so they gave me an opportunity and I ran with it. And that's my first introduction to marketing. And I was very lucky to be introduced to something that I was good at and ended up being my career at an early age. And a lot of young brothers and sisters from where I'm from don't get that opportunity. So <clears throat> the long and short of it is you were unconventionally educated to get to this point. Yes, absolutely. Even to the point when I was homeless, like very unconventional, unconventional education. Yeah. So did you, did you end up finishing school ever? For college? Yes. No. No, okay. uh, I ended up dropping out three times, but okay. yeah, I never finished. The reason why I asked is certainly not to come off uh, as degrading by any way, by any means. Um, what's, what's most fascinating to me is that you found a way to educate yourself uh, more than enough to the point where, you know, you have your second or third major chief marketing chief marketing officer role um in 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 just what five to seven years yeah um, yeah tell me more about that education i mean obviously you've had a lot of practical education but what other sources of information did you pursue to learn to learn the craft yeah so to me the internet was the was my best friend um and you put me in the world maybe you know, 40, 50 years ago or whatever, uh, I probably wouldn't have had that same level of success. I think the internet has been the great equalizer, not a true equalizer because, you know, growing up as a black man or black woman in this country, there is no true equalizer, but it provides a platform and an opportunity to learn and really sharpen your skills and learn pretty much anything. And let's get into that really quickly. Yeah. Hold on. I want to get into that really quickly. Do you or do you not believe that money can be an equalizer? No. I think money and knowledge can help get you there, but true equality is it does not come from money um, or knowledge. Okay. Can I can I can I challenge you there? Yeah, sure, 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 sure. Do you do you believe and this is sort of an off question, so I apologize. Do yeah. you believe that LeBron James is worried about the outcome of today? For those that don't know, today we're recording on election day. Uh do you think that LeBron James is worried about the outcome of election day for he and his family? Absolutely. And okay. why? And why? Because you chose, I think you chose the wrong athlete here. If you said Michael Jordan, I would have been like, ah. <laughs> but for LeBron James. Fair enough. Fair I, enough. I, th but, I think, but, yeah. But I think for LeBron James, he's very passionate about social justice. And uh, he's very passionate about the future of, of Black people. And I think he understands the importance of this, even if financially it may not affect him um, very much. You know, I still think he cares very much about the outcome. I, I would agree with you. I would also say that I, I think maybe consciously or subconsciously, I haven't decided yet. I chose LeBron over Michael Jordan because it seems as though Michael Jordan has another piece that LeBron has chosen to, to jettison for the sake of his pursuit of social justice. 
right? I don't see LeBron James ever launching a NASCAR team. Yeah, no. he would have a <laughs> he would have a harder time doing that than Jordan did. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and and, and they both have chosen two very very different paths, um, and you know. Jay-Z talks about this all the time where he talks about how like, yo, no matter how much money you have, you know, how much success you have, you're still black at the end of the day. And so when I really think of true equality, I don't know if that can be achieved. It can make, it can, you can feel like you have it because money makes you like, I don't have LeBron money. Right. But Obviously, through the success of my career, I've been able to see behind the veil a little bit and be in certain rooms and be around certain people that I would have never been able to. But at the end of the day, the privilege that comes with, you know, being a white man, a white woman in this country, the 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 advantages of having um, generational wealth, the advantages of having generational knowledge Man, it's tough. A lot of the black people I know that are successful, they're the first ones in their family to be successful. A lot of the white people that I know that are, you know, successful, you know, they come from generations of success. I I, I want to I want to clarify two things really quickly. I think you're right. Uh, the first, when people say that they are first generation successful, for those that don't know, what tends to happen is. Let's say I was the first generation to be successful in my family. I would typically have to find a way to support my, my, my parents and my relatives to help sort of um, fortify, their, fortify their income or, or their well-being. Usually first generation families, whether they're immigrants or minorities, have to support their elders, right? And so that's one of the taxes of being the first to be successful. Number one, I, I just want to make sure that everyone knows what you're talking about. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I forgot the second point. Damn it. Uh, what's the second thing that you said? Um, well, it's, it's really the, the knowledge piece, right? The knowledge yes. piece is, is huge of having that up front. Yes. And so in that respect, I, I mean, I certainly relate. I feel like we have different lives, but we're, we're similar enough. There are elements of wealth, knowledge that you don't know until you experience them yourselves, until maybe, you, you know, until you perhaps get burnt the first time, right? Yeah. Whether, yeah. whether it's a tax issue or maybe you paid, you know, cap gains a little bit higher than you were supposed to because you didn't have the right CPA that could have navigated before you, Absolutely. right? Things that you just, things that you just know if, if your parents knew that or... You know, like I tell my daughter, you know, I, I went back to grad school and because I told her that, you know, we shared the same desired school. And I was like, you're not going to be the first one to go to that school. You know, she's 12, about to be 13. That's like on her wall. I was like, I'm going to try to make it as easy for you as possible to get into that school someday. Because when I was 18, there's no way in hell I was going to go. And so um, those are the benefits of generational wealth. It's not just money. Sometimes it is knowledge. Yeah. And I mean, I even face that in the art world, even buying art. As you know, art is super expensive, right? But there yeah. are so many different ways and tax breaks and things that you can do to buy art that I had no idea about. 
you know, and if you don't have that knowledge and you don't have that history of people there to be able to teach you and kind of walk you through, it's kind of like you go through life being successful, but really taking the hard way in a lot of ways because you don't understand the tricks to the trade. And so yeah. I think that's that's one of the most difficult parts. And you made an amazing point about having to take care of people. You know, it's it's a lot different when you don't have to take care of your mom. You don't have to take care of different members of your family. Like they're all straight and you can literally have those blinders on like a racehorse to really focus on you and building yourself up. Yeah, I agree with you. And I'm glad that we've sort of gone, I don't want to call this a tangent, but you know, this is the beauty of having conversations with different people. We have things that we can relate to that maybe other folks haven't gotten to hear in real time. And this is a pretty raw conversation. Um, you know, marketing for you was that was that path to the step function. And for me, it was e-commerce. And it's funny, I have this quick story, not quick story, but it's an antidote. Uh, you know, I took my first big job in e-commerce and I walked through the doors the, fir- the first day. I won't say what company it was. And I was talking about my passion for Jean-Michel Basquiat. And, you know, how everything that this is back in you know, I was 25, 26, everything that he did inspired me. And it was at a point where everyone knew who he was, but he wasn't a household name yet, right? He was, he was a household name in hip hop. He wasn't a household name in the, in pop culture per se. Right. And um, I remember like the person that I was going to work for making fun of the name, like didn't know who it was. It was making fun of the fact that I was even saying his name because there was a lack of awareness as to Jean-Michel's contributions to both art, culture, whatever, hip-hop, um, mainstream media, whatever, however you want to position it. Um, and in that moment, I was like, man, I wish there was a better way to communicate the importance of art in your life, right? Right. Do you have... Do you have any stories of, like, when you, when you build Artsy, how can you help people that are new to the scene not only dive deeper themselves, but help communicate their passions for it elsewhere? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is, this is a beautiful question and, and ultimately one of the, the biggest reasons that I'm at Artsy. Um, art, to me is representative of <laughs> what we were just talking about. It's this 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 very opaque, very um, almost like mystical industry that has excluded black and brown people and people that look like us for a very long time, unless they could benefit off of us like a Basquiat. And it's been an industry as well that has been a great wealth generator for so many that don't look like us. And um, a lot of our culture as Black people is owned and uh, commoditized by people that don't look like us in the art world. And it's a passion of mine to be able to open this space up for everybody, not just you know people of color, but for everybody. Um, from all different walks of life and kind of demystify this space and educate people about the art world because 
it can be so intimidating. And I realized early on, for instance, I just launched this community of Black-owned galleries on Artsy, and we have work starting at $300. People assume that art is this extremely expensive thing. And, and don't get me wrong, I understand that $300 is still a lot of money for a lot of people and a lot of Americans and a lot of people worldwide, but it's not as expensive to get started as you may think. And in realizing that, you know, you're running your own race and your own journey, maybe your collecting art is like buying one piece a year that's under $1,500 and start building your collection that way. And then in 10 years, you have 10, a collection of, of 10 works, you know, you can, you can do it any way that you want to. So I think I'm very passionate about the education part of this and the democratization part of this in terms of really educating people about the art world, inspiring new people to embrace art. And a lot of people love art. They just don't know where to start or really where to express themselves and really see people that look like themselves um, collecting art. And so that's something that's very important for me. Um, and actually, you know, heading into 2021, really starting a lot of initiatives of spotlighting different types of artists, different collectors that can really open this thing up. You know, that's a, that you presented some wonderful points. Um, a few things. And I feel sort of ignorant here, but I didn't know that people stored their art to offset taxes or tax <laughs> responsibility yeah. until I watched, until I watched Tenet. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Like I, I felt I was like ashamed of myself. Like, oh, there are actual facilities like this where you can store your art in air cooled, climate controlled environments to avoid having to pay for the taxes on those pro on on those projects. Number one, uh, I thought that was really interesting that that it took me so long to figure that out. But to your earlier point. You know, I was actually in Truckee, California, visiting uh, a mentor of mine. And the mentor's name is uh, Jeff Richards. He's the managing partner of GGV Capital. Um, I call him my ambassador of Quan, sort of, the, uh, sort of a, uh, a reference to Jerry Maguire because he always finds a way to help me lift myself up. <laughs> and um, he took me to this art studio one day. And I, I got to talk to the artist. He sells probably 30 pieces a year now uh, in, in, you know, expensive ski towns and you know i was like jeff like that's a great piece of art like how much is it how much do you think and you know the guy comes over he's like oh like this is this is three thousand dollars and what struck me in that moment was yeah that's a lot of money but that piece of art was also on jeff's living room wall and if you knew anything about jeff or his house you would have expected that piece of art to cost a, a heck of a lot more right so like one, one thing that I learned in that moment was art is not about, not, art is not always about like the, the price that you can get for it. It's about your appreciation for the art itself. Absolutely. And that appreciation is what, is how the price is assigned, not necessarily who or when it was actually uh, designed or manufactured. Absolutely. So I just thought that was interesting. That was, yeah. that was an eye opener for me. Yeah, it's 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 really interesting. You know, the way that I personally collect is I collect pieces that speak to me, right? It's it's not about the price point. Now, I've also look, man, you know me. Like I'm an investor too. So, 
uh, and, and try to be financially savvy. And I found a way to collect things that speak to me, but also have value, have value and are good investments as well. Right. Because it's like you could spend $3,000 on this piece or this piece. You love both, but one may be a better investment than the other. So if I'm going to spend that 3000, I'm going to spend it on, if I have two pieces that I equally love, then I'm want to, I'm going to spend it on the thing that's going to be the better investment. And so as I've evolved and learned about the art world, I've learned that you can buy things that you love, but also that have value and are stronger investments. And so just navigating that space in general is, is tough. And I think one of the things that Artsy has done a great job of and will continue to do so under under my leadership and the team that we have is continue to expand. I mean, you know, over 60% of the people that have that have bought art this year on Artsy bought art for the first time on Artsy, right? Like we're introducing a whole new generation of digital savvy collectors that are used to buying things at a click of a button, right? The, this is the Amazon generation, right? This is the the internet shopping generation. And so we've been able to provide an experience and continue to iterate on that experience. Um, and I'm a very product centric CMO. And so I'm very focused on, um, you know, creating a better experience. When I was CMO at Sticker Mule, that was, that was the key, man. It's like, can, can someone come out of here and buy stickers in under 60 seconds? Right. And really trying to create that, that seamless transaction is really, really important for this new generation of collectors. That's a good point. Uh, if you don't mind, list your roles over the past decade. Oh, over the past decade. So this would be starting in 2010. So um, so I was founder of Easy Events um, in 2010, which was acquired in 2011. Um, and then I went to, I moved to California. I was head of marketing for a company called Qualaroo, um, a SaaS business, uh, which got acquired by Zenon Ventures and actually got acquired again. Um, uh, then I was uh, head of growth, VP of growth at Growth Hackers, uh, as well as the co-founder of Growth Hackers, which was the number one marketing community for growth marketers. And then we uh, created a SaaS product there as well. I then became CMO of Sticker Mule, um, which is, I think, probably the biggest sticker company um, in the country. A lot of people don't realize how much you know revenue we were doing over there. Um, so I was CMO of Sticker Mule. Um, and then I became interim head of growth uh, for Microsoft China um, in Beijing, where I was uh, overseeing growth for new uh, mobile apps. Um, so like, you know, the TikToks of the world and things like we, obviously we didn't create TikTok, but we were, we were looking to create uh, a new slew of apps to target the millennial and Gen Z, um, audience. And then I became CMO of skirt, uh, for a couple years, which was acquired by fair.com in 2018. And then, uh, I took some time to just be completely entrepreneurial as CEO of ET Enterprises, which had companies like Pop Social and Millicent and and others. Um, and then now, re just recently in December of 2019, became CMO of Artsy. So it's been this very interesting career of um, executive roles mixed with entrepreneurial um, entrepreneurial ventures. So I'm looking at the front page, the homepage of Artsy right now. 
uh, tell me if I tell me if I say his name wrong, but I think that the image at the top left is Kehinde Wiley's work. It um, maybe uh, you know you get different experiences uh, depending on. Oh yeah, for contemporary art, that is Kehinde Wiley. Yep. Sweet. I'm I'm not as uncultured as I thought. Um, <laughs> uh, so the question I have is. What's what's the most expensive piece of art that you've actually sold through that pl- to, through that platform? Oh, we've we've sold million dollar pieces through this platform. Wow! So um, tell me tell me about like tell me about how like the mechanism works. Like how does Artsy get paid? How do you scale that? Let's talk about like the pure e commerce stuff really quick, and then we can move on. Yeah. So how Artsy gets paid is so there's a there's a there's a couple things. We're we're a two sided marketplace. So number one we get money from our subscriptions on the B2B side, right? So galleries and partners and art dealers pay a subscription to sell on our platform, right? Um, The second part of that is on our e-commerce side, uh, when people sell through our e-commerce platform, we actually take a percentage of that sale. And that can go through what we call buy now, make offer. So you can you can go and actually make an offer on a piece or you could just buy it now. So say a piece is $10,000, you can buy it now for 10000 or you can make an offer and say, hey, I would like, because you know, art's different. You can make an offer for $9,000 and that gallery can choose to accept that piece, right? And so we then take a percentage of that payout through Stripe. We take a percentage of that and then pay out the, pay out the gallery. And then the, uh, the other piece of this is, you know, doing auctions and things like that as well. And so we have auctions and secondary, uh, consignments on our platform as well, where we take a percentage of that as well. And so we're taking bits and pieces there. And then like, for instance, people who run auctions on our platform, we also have like a production fee and things like that. But ultimately we're getting money on a subscription side, and then we're taking a percentage from all of the sales that are happening on the e-commerce side. That's pretty fascinating. Uh, I'm, I know this is somewhat of a joke because you've clearly explained the democratization of art, but I'm, I'm still too poor to shop on your site. I really do look forward to, to myself a year from now. However, I will, you will certainly know, like you will know first and foremost when, when I'm finally liquid, I'm really excited for that. I'm just, (laughs) I'm just really interested in original art. And if I, you know, I don't know if you know much about me personally, but if I do something, I go all in, you know? So it's not going to be one piece for my, for my living room, right? It's going to be consistent consistency throughout the house. Yeah. I'm I'm waiting for that moment. And I'm excited for you to get into the art world because when you see the, uh, the liquidity that can happen through art, it's insane, man. Like, honestly, for instance, like I bought a piece from um, Mwako Bofo, I think for like seven, eight thousand dollars. He's going, he's his pieces are auctioning for eight hundred thousand. That was I bought that piece in early two thousand nineteen. You know, and so if you're really smart about your collecting and how you collect, you can really make, um, you can really make a lot of money or just grow a lot of value to your investment portfolio through art. But here's the best thing about art is one, you don't have to sell it. And number two, you get to actually enjoy your investment. It's just not like numbers in an app. It's not like some stock or some crypto. Like this is something that's 
actually in your home that you get to enjoy or be able to pass down generationally like that. Like think about that person that bought Kehinde Wally for like $3,000, $4,000. And now he can, he can, he can pay for all of his children's college tuition from one, from that piece. Right. And but so let's yeah. talk about that really quickly yeah. because to me, the first time I saw Kehinde Wiley was probably, probably when it was too late. It was in the Columbus Museum of Art. Uh, it was in a gold frame, and it was the <laughs> it was the image. It was a full body image, so I'm talking like it was bigger than me. Right. And it was the gentleman standing in a Napoleonic figure with his Tims on and his yep. baggy jeans, wearing a polo shirt, holding a cane. And in my mind, I thought whether that was on this wall or at some garage sale for fifty bucks, I would have done whatever it. Would, whatever I could have to have purchased that product. Right. Like it was, it was immediately obvious to me that one day everyone's going to want this guy's art. Yeah. And then obviously two or three years later, it was uh, president Obama that he drew. Right. Right. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I was so upset. Yeah. Even, even at that time when you saw it, it was probably on the more expensive side, but like probably not as a, as expensive as you may have thought it was, right? Um, but you know that's one of the first signs of seeing an artist when you know when they when they when a museum actually decides to uh, acquire their work and things like that. But you know, here's the thing: if you saw that Kahende Wally five years before that, three years before that, still you would have known there was something special about this artist, right? One hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. And that's and that's the thing about a lot of these artists. This first time I saw a Marco Bofo or whoever, you know, I I knew in my head that that artist was special. It wasn't it wasn't hard for me. Right. <laughs> you know, and so I think having that eye is is really, really important when collecting art is having an eye for it. And then also I'm really excited for the things that we're about to bring to Artsy, which I think you'll love as a numbers guy as well, to really start to help people from from a from a pure data standpoint collect better and collect the right artists as well. So let's let's talk about something else technical really quickly. I know that we're running out of time, but you know this is this has been a fascinating conversation. Let's say that you know we're uh, you know we're building a house right now, and you know we want to outfit it with new art. How do you protect your investment? Is there like a special insurance that you buy? Will Artsy ever get into the into the administration of that insurance? I would love for us one day. I mean, like like you know, when it comes to e-commerce, man, it's it's all about prioritization. But I would love to get into I would love to get into uh, those things like insurance and X Y Z. Um, but I still think there's a lot of low hanging fruit to do before we get there as well. Um, but yes, there's, there's insurance companies, all of my art is insured. Um, and that's important to do, man, like, God forbid, you know, a fire happens, or something happens, or you get robbed or whatever, you want to protect yourself. These are very valuable things. And so insurance is an important part of that. And I could definitely see artsy potentially in the future, um, you know, working or integrating with providers to help provide insurance, right? I don't know if we would get into the pure art insurance space, but I definitely could see that. Because for me, the dream for me at Artsy is to literally, 
you know, at a click of a button or scanning of a QR code at an art fair that boom, you buy it, you got your shipping, you got everything done, all calculated, boom, 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 boom. You can buy a $10,000 piece in two minutes, right? Like that is, that is, that is the dream. And what a lot of people don't understand is like one of the one of the the biggest problems in the world of art, and that's why e-commerce is such a beautiful thing, is that the the transactional nature of art, like having to go to the bank and make a wire or call your bank or, you know, oh, your wiring limit is only 5,000. This piece is 7,500, you know, having to deal with shipping. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about that because that's the most frustrating thing in the world. Obviously, you know what that's like because you, you make, you've made investments as well. Right. Um, or if you're buying a car, right? Right. And you, know, you want to put a lot of money down on the car so that the payments are lower. Obviously, in the art world, that's an even bigger problem for the average Joe. Right? Right. If you're not a seven-figure, eight-figure, nine-figure person... Your your wiring your wire your daily wiring limit is what fifty thousand dollars twenty five thousand dollars depending on the person. Oh, lower than that. I, I learned for ten. Yeah. Yeah. What, what do you do in that situation? How do you make that transaction? Yeah. So you have to get approved by your bank. You have to go into your bank. You have to talk to a banker and get that uh, that limit increased. Right. Um, it's it's a very like just arduous process to do so like it's it's something that's not easy to do and that's why rc continuing to iterate on this e-commerce experience for the art world makes it so easy like you know trying to buy an art art piece can be like it could take it could take you all day from going to the bank and figuring out shipping and doing this and doing that you know, to be able to do all of that all in one place and, and provide that seamless experience for the consumer. But then also a lot of galleries, they have what they call registrars that deal with their shipping and deal with, um, you know, taking payment and things like that. And then you have people think about this on the business side where someone commits to buying a piece and then takes forever to buy the piece. Right. On Artsy is like, boom, no, you're getting that money today right? You're setting up yeah. all that today. And so it provides that experience. And I'll be the first to say that Artsy isn't all the way completely there in the e-commerce experience of like the seamless transaction, because the art world is a tough, tough place to do e-commerce. But I mean, we're number one in what we're doing right now. And we're moving fast to make that experience even better. What, what improvements do you foresee being able to help you out right now? You know, I'm looking through your site and it looks like a custom build, right? Why, why not Shopify? Like, why not big commerce? Like, what's, what's next with the technology behind your site? Yeah, I think um, without, giving, without giving too much away, I think we do need a custom build just because of what we're doing. And you got to understand that, you know, people, for instance... Um, when they buy art, typically a lot of people want to talk to someone, right? They want to be able to communicate. If you're making an investment of that price point, there's 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 only a certain kind of person that like sees a $20,000 piece and is like, you know, I want that, buy it now, right? A lot of times you're probably going to want a conversation with that gallery or a representative of that gallery and things like that. And so making those conversations easier, we've introduced chat, we've introduced all these new things 
within uh, the flow of our e-commerce product, but continuing to iterate on those things, right? And like, for instance, price is like a huge piece to that. So, you know, some galleries, I think it's like 90, like 90% of the stuff that sells on Artsy is people actually putting on through our e-commerce platform is people actually showing price. And, you know, you probably don't know this, but that's a big major deal. Like even just getting people to show visible pricing was a, was a, you know, fight in itself. Right. Because, Because they wanted it to be more subjective. It's just the, it's just the art world thing is that opaqueness It's that it's that it's that not wanting to show your hand kind of thing. Right. Um, and it's just weird. It's just, it's just not, it's not the right thing to do. Um, and it makes that the, the transaction and it makes trying to enter into this world of seeing something that you love and you don't know what price it is. And then they tell you the price and you're like, is, am I getting a good deal on this? Are they trying to swindle me? You like, as, as a smart person, you're going to think like that, right? But if yeah. you, the beauty of e-commerce, what a lot of people don't understand is e-commerce has, to kind of tie back in, has become that equalizer of that, hey, you got to show this, right? Like, hey, if you're trying to sell these sneakers for $2,000, I can also go to GOAT and figure out what the price of these are going on in the market, right? And so yeah, yeah. I love the idea of more transparency in the art world with visible pricing. But one I think the things that you're gonna see us really focus in on is like making shipping easier, making uh, transactions easier, um, you know, allowing people to potentially make, you know, payments over time, like really honing in into what will make that experience better for uh, the artsy e-commerce um, consumer. It's- it's funny you just said you said something that I thought was a really interesting arbitrage opportunity. Imagine you did get into payments over time, and imagine those payments over time were like what spaced out over a year. I think a year is the tops, maybe maybe two years depending on the vendor. And you're banking on that piece of art actually um, appreciating value in that time, whether you have information that you're privy to or someone else does. Think about what industry that could spur off, right? Like that—that's somewhat of what you're seeing in the in the in the gaming or in the um, uh, sports card industry, for instance, right? Um, or on Rally. I don't know if you're familiar with Rally. Or- yeah, I actually, did I did something before I signed with Artsy? I actually did an influencer. Uh, for those who, people who don't know, I, I also do like social media influencer stuff for different brands, and actually did something for Rally right before I joined Artsy. <laughs> Is that? To you, is that a conflict of interest right now? Oh, I I, I think it's very different, man. I think it's yeah. very different. We're not worried about all respect to rally, but we're not. It's, it's just a different type of market. It's a different type of customer. I think a lot of people that are buying things or are investing on platforms like rally, um, you know, it's different when you're investing like it's like like stock than like actually being able to buy a piece of art and live with and it. Owning it and putting and it in owning your home. it. Yeah. It's just it's just very, very different. But I really think what those guys are doing is really dope from a pure investment standpoint. Because it's like, hey, yeah. you might not be able to buy a Kehinde Wally, but maybe you can buy, you know, one percent of a Kehinde Wally, right? And that's still right. gonna be a multi-million dollar piece someday and you're gonna earn something off of that. So I think that's cool of of allowing people the opportunity to get in somewhere. Well, listen, man, 
this has been a wonderful conversation. I know that you have to go. You had a you had a dead stop. Yeah. And um, I wanted to say thank you for taking the time to do this. I think that the audience is going to learn a lot um, for for the things that we didn't get to talk to. Hopefully, I can flesh them out through essays. But uh, you're a fascinating character. You've done a lot in your life, in your young life. You're younger than me. I'm 37. How old are you? 31. That makes me sick. <laughs> I... <laughs> I mean, you got you got you got Kanye following you, so you're way cooler <laughs> than me. Well, depending on who you ask, that's a good or a bad. Thing, but I, love, I, I love Kanye, and oh, I, that's, I a, that's a whole other conversation. That's a whole other conversation. That's that whole we don't other... have the time for. But I will say, he's he's from a pure. If you take away all bias, two things really stick out to me about Kanye. Number one, everything that he says that he's going to do. He tends to do and make happen, right? And I and I, I respect that. that. I respect that a lot. I remember when people were literally getting killed over Yeezys, and like you know, people were complaining about getting access to his shoe. And he said, "Hey, don't worry," because you remember it was just really like influencers and people with money that really had access to it. And he said, "You know what? Don't worry." Like there's going to be more coming, more, more is going to be available. And now you walk down the street and everyday people are wearing Yeezys. He also said that about his clothes and, you know, the expensive nature of his clothes and access to those clothes. And now he signs a, you know, a multi-billion dollar deal with Gap. Um, whether you're, you're looking at him from trying to crack, you know, crack into the rap game or fashion, I do respect the fact that he's been able to, um, you know, basically, I don't think he'll be president, but I do respect the fact that he's been able to prove doubters wrong throughout his career and continue to innovate. To your point, I don't think he's going to be president either, of course, but all he said was that he was going to run for president. And in that respect, the man literally has done everything that he said he was going to do over the past decade. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. And so you take all of the the personal feelings aside of 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 everything. I don't want to get into that. That's fuck that. But when you take <laughs> you take <laughs> I'm not I'm not trying to get canceled here. But when you take generally generally just the innovation and like the designs and the things that I see coming out of Yeezy, um I just I think is is very inspiring to see the work that he's doing but yeah on the personal side that's that's a whole nother story but anyways you're still the coolest man you you got him following you so that's dope <laughs> well i appreciate it my man uh thank you so much for the time and I, I look forward to getting this out and publishing it for the people yeah brother take care